this is uh, one of our sessions uh, that uh, is going to really, really be exciting because we're going to continue discussing uh, how the Old Testament points to the first coming of Jesus, and then we are going to speak about how the Old Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. And so we have some exciting things to study in our class now, and I invite you to uh, find the material that is titled, The Sabbath and Redemption. The Sabbath and Redemption. Uh, this uh, is a handout that is composed, I believe, of about eight pages, and we're going to work our way through the document as we have with all of the previous documents. I've written it all down so that you're able to follow along and so that you're able to use it in the future. Because if I just showed it on the screen, you know, that would be nice. Uh, but to have it before you means that you can use it in the future when you share with other people. Uh, we want to begin by reading a passage that is very well known to Seventh-day Adventists. Exodus chapter 20 and verses 8 through 11, the fourth commandment of God's holy law. And um, I want us to notice three things about this passage that we're going to read. So let's read it first. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And then comes the motivation for keeping the Sabbath, the reason, in verse 11. For, that means because, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. So the first question is, is the Sabbath a shadow of things to come? The Sabbath is not a shadow of things to come. The Sabbath points us back to creation. It reminds us of the Creator. We also notice that when the Sabbath was created there was no sinner. And therefore when the Sabbath was established Originally, it had nothing to do with sin, because some people say, well, the Sabbath simply pointed forward to Jesus Christ, who would be our rest. But in its original function, the Sabbath is not related to sin or the plan of salvation. We're going to study that afterwards, the Sabbath acquired a secondary function, but its primary function has to do with creation, not with redemption. And the final point that I want us to notice about this passage is that there were no Jews when the Sabbath was established. The word Jew comes from Judah, and that was long after creation. And so, the Sabbath institution is an institution that goes back all the way to creation, before any Jew, before sin, and therefore the Sabbath in its original intention is God's plan in a perfect universe, in a perfect world. But having said that, I need to emphasize and underline that the Sabbath after sin came in has a second function, a post-fall function. It's not the original function. In fact, the fall function does not eliminate the first function, but rather enhances it and makes it even more meaningful. 
Now what is the post-fall function of the Sabbath? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 12 through 15. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 12 through 15. In this passage, the fourth commandment is repeated again, but there is a difference uh, in the book of Deuteronomy with the commandment that is found in Exodus chapter 20. Notice Deuteronomy 5 and beginning with verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, very similar to Exodus 20. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor, any strange, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your manservant and your maidservant may rest as well as you. So very similar to the commandment in Exodus 20, but now comes the difference. It continues saying, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So do you see that the Sabbath has a second function? It has a function of remembering Israel of their deliverance from bondage. Now the question is, have we been delivered from bondage? From bondage to sin? Absolutely. Is the Sabbath a sign of our deliverance from the bondage of sin? Absolutely. You see, the second function of the Sabbath does not eliminate the first. It gives us an additional reason to keep the Sabbath. Are you following me or not? Now, we're going to study one particular verse that we find in the Old Testament. Of course, there will be other verses related to that one, but there's one particular verse that we want to take a look at. And that verse is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. But before we notice that, I want to read John 5, 39, and then verses 46 and 47. We read these in a previous class, but let's read them again to see who is the center of the writings of Moses. It says there in verse 39, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So the scriptures of the Old Testament testify to Jesus. And then Jesus says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And then jumping down to verse 46, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So who is at the center of the writings of Moses? Jesus Christ is at the center of Moses. In fact, Jesus says that Moses gives witness to him. Everything in the writings of Moses is centered in Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned, you can read that other text that we have here. Um, it's found in Luke 24, 25 through 27, and then verses 44 and 45. We referred to those in one of our previous classes. But now I want us to notice what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, the primary verse of our study. Of course, other verses will be connected with this one. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 is speaking about the manna that fell from heaven. Now, you remember that Israel was in the wilderness, 
And of course they uh, did not stay in one place very long, so they did not grow any crops. So God had to feed them miraculously. And the way that God fed them was by sending manna from heaven that had all of the necessary nutrients to sustain uh, their physical life. But did God give the manna primarily to sustain them physically? Well, let's notice what Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 has to say. Here Moses is reminiscing about the manna episode, and he says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Now why did God give the manna? Notice the explanation that is given in the last half of the verse. He gave the manna that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What was the purpose of the manna? Yes, to sustain them physically, but it was more than physical food because we read that it was spiritual food. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10? He gave them spiritual food. So the manna was real food. It met physical needs, but it was spiritual food in the sense that the manna represented what? The word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The manna represents God's word. So we need to ask the question, who is God's word? Well, let's go to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Very well-known passage. We could probably recite it from memory. It says there, in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And of course, who is that Word? If you go down to verse 14, it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word is Jesus Christ. So what does the manna represent? It represents the Word of God, and the Word of God is symbolic of Jesus. Now notice this interesting statement from Ellen White that comes from the devotional book, That I May Know Him, page 38. I love this statement. She says, what speech is to thought? See, we think and then we what? I would hope so. Sometimes we speak and then we think. But really we should think and then speak. So it says, what speech is to thought, so is Christ to the invisible Father. Do you realize what she's saying? She's saying that the Father thinks and Jesus utters the thoughts of God. That's an amazing thought. That's why Jesus is the Word of God. The Father thinks and Jesus expresses it audibly so that we can hear it and so that we can read it. And then Ellen White continues saying, He is the manifestation of the Father and is called what? Is called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. So the manna represents Jesus. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, which underlines the same truth. We're going to read several texts. How do you suppose I found all these texts? Ah, sola scriptura, reading other verses that speak about bread and speak about the manna, the same subject, the same theme. I hope that that, that, that becomes a principle 
uh, second nature to us. Uh, notice what we find in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Paul is reminiscing about some of the experiences in the pilgrimage of Israel. And it says there, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same what? spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. What does the manna represent? Christ. What does the rock represent? Christ. What does the water represent? Ah, I threw you a curve. <laughs> a knuckleball. The water represents the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends. So it is still Christ-centered. So the water is spiritual, the rock is spiritual, and the manna is spiritual. See, we're not only dealing with literal in the Old Testament, what is literal in the Old Testament in the period of the church becomes spiritual. Tomorrow we're going to study that principle and we're going to illustrate it. It's vitally important. Now, let's go to John chapter 6 and verses 48 through 50 where this becomes explicit that the manna represents Christ. John chapter 6 and verses 48 through 50. There's no doubt whatsoever now about what the manna represents. Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So what is the manna according to Jesus? He is the living manna that came down from heaven to speak the words of God. He is the word of God. But there's something else. I want you to notice that the manna represents something specific about Jesus. Not only does the manna represent Jesus in general terms, there's something specific about Jesus that is represented by the manna. Now what is represented specifically about Jesus? Notice John chapter, chapter 6 and verse 51. John 6 verse 51. Here Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is what? Is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. What does the manna represent specifically about Jesus? It represents his flesh, which is a very important detail. It represents his flesh. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important? Well, in order to understand the reason why this is important, we need to go back to the chapter that speaks about the manna. Wouldn't that be a good idea? Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, and we'll read verses 19 and 20. Exodus 16, 19 and 20. What happened when Israel went out and picked up manna, say, Wednesday for Thursday? It spoiled. Two things happened to it. It bred worms and it stank. Let's read about it. Exodus 16, verse 19. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it until morning. 
notwithstanding they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Two things happened to this bread, if it was safe from one day to the next, and that is it bred worms and it stank. Now was this common ordinary bread? Let's suppose that you go to the supermarket and you buy a loaf of bread, and you don't eat it today, you eat it tomorrow. When you open the package, it has worms and it stinks, right? Of course not. Well, let's suppose that you leave the bread a week and you don't use it, and you open up the package, and it's bread worms and it stinks. No. How about a month later? It might be moldy, but it doesn't breed worms and stink. What is it that breeds worms and stinks? A decomposing body, decomposing flesh. And what does the manna represent? The flesh of Jesus Christ. You see, uh, what happens many times is we take passages and we repeat the same lesson over and over again. You know, I was always taught, and I believe it's correct, that the purpose why God gave the manna was to teach us that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. There was no manna on the Sabbath, there were supposed to keep the Sabbath, but there's a deeper reason than just keeping the Sabbath. There has to be a Christ-centered reason for keeping the Sabbath. In the manna episode, there has to be something about Christ in this passage. There has to be a Christ-centered motivation for keeping the Sabbath. Are you following me or not? Now, let's see what Exodus 16, 19, and 20 says. So it says, And Moses said, Let no one leave it of it until the morning, notwithstanding they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Now what happened when they picked up manna on Friday and they saved it for Sabbath? It was just as fresh on Sabbath as it had been on Friday. Now let's read that in Exodus chapter 16 and verses 23 and 24. Exodus 16, 23 and 24. Here Moses is speaking to the people. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest a holy Sabbath unto the Jews. Are you awake out there? Oh, okay, I'm just trying to make a point. A holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains, to be kept until the morning. So to be kept until the Sabbath. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Interesting. Why did it breed worms and stink any day except the Sabbath, whereas the Sabbath it did not breed worms and stink? The answer is we have to go to the Gospels to find out why. Because that's where this manna episode is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's examine the last three declarations of Jesus on the cross. You know he spoke seven words from the cross. We're going to take a look at the last three of the declarations of Jesus on the cross to try and understand why it is important that the manna did not breed worms and stink when it was kept for the Sabbath. The first declaration, actually this is the uh, not the first of his declarations, but the first that we're going to take a look at. Matthew 27 and verse 46. 
This is declaration number five that Jesus made from the cross. It says, and about the ninth hour, was it, st was it the ninth hour yet? No. What hour is the ninth hour? Three o'clock in the afternoon. So it says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli Eli lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words were spoken slightly before the ninth hour, slightly before three o'clock in the afternoon. Now let's take a look at the sixth declaration, the next to last declaration of Jesus from the cross. It's found in John chapter 19 and verse 30, where Jesus is speaking. And it says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, each gospel writer has a particular emphasis. There was actually a last saying that Jesus made from the cross, and it's not mentioned in John. And so we have to go to the last saying as it is found in the gospel of Luke, chapter 23 and verse 46. This is the last declaration of Jesus from the, from the cross. And uh, you'll notice there that Jesus says something very significant. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he what? He breathed his last. And Jesus died. So when Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's about the, the ninth hour. It's almost three o'clock in the afternoon. When Jesus says it is finished, it's still close to three o'clock in the afternoon, but a lot closer. And when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he said this at three o'clock in the afternoon. And you say, how do you know that? Well, we have to go back to the Passover celebration in the Old Testament. And so go with me to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 6, where we find exactly at what time the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Is Jesus the Passover lamb, symbolically speaking? Yes, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So the Passover celebration is fulfilled in Jesus. So if the Passover lamb was sacrificed at a certain hour, we would expect that Jesus died at that same hour, correct? Yes. Now, notice Exodus 12 and verse 6. I'm reading from the New King James, and it says, Now you shall keep it, that is the lamb, until the fourteenth day of the same month. That's the month of Nisan. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now, uh, that's, uh, that sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? At twilight. Actually, the Hebrew doesn't say twilight. Literally, the Hebrew says that the Passover lamb should be sacrificed between the two evenings. That's what the Hebrew says. That the lamb was sacrificed between the two evenings. And you say, now wait a minute. What does that mean between the two evenings? As Adventists, we know one of those evenings is when the sun sets, right? From even to even shall you keep your Sabbath. But what, what is the other evening? Well, the fact is that according to the Jews, when the sun began to descend from its meridian, in other words, from being directly overhead, it was the first evening. And then when the sun set on the horizon, 
it was the second evening. In other words, noon, afternoon would be the first evening, and when the sun sets is the second evening. I want to read you a quotation that we find from Adam Clark's commentary, where he explains this. He says, the Jews divided the day into morning and evening, till the sun passed the meridian. All was morning or afternoon. After that, all was afternoon or evening. Their first evening began just after 12 o'clock and continued till sunset. The second evening began at sunset and continued till night. During the whole time of twilight, between 12 o'clock therefore and the termination of twilight, the Passover was to be offered. The day among the Jews had 12 hours. The first hour was about 6 o'clock in the morning with us. The sixth hour was our noon. The ninth hour answered to our 3 o'clock in the afternoon. By this we may understand that the time in which Christ was crucified began at the third hour, that is, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the ordinary time for the daily morning sacrifice, and ended at the ninth hour, that is, the 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. Wherefore, their ninth hour was their hour of prayer, when they used to go into the temple at the daily evening sacrifice. And this was the ordinary time for the Passover. It is worthy of remark that God sets no particular hour for the killing of the Passover any time between the two evenings, between 12 o'clock in the day and termination of twilight was lawful, except that the Bible clearly says that he died at the ninth hour. So the Bible is more specific on this point. It wasn't any time between noon and six o'clock. Jesus died right square in the middle at the ninth hour. Now, uh, so, so what is uh, this saying to us? What it's saying is that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon at what time? He died on a Friday afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon at the time when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And you know, there's something interesting, maybe as a sidelight that I'll share with you. Uh, you know, we, we take the prophecy of the 70 weeks, where it says that in the middle of the week, he would make the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And basically what we've said is that uh, that means that even though they continue the sacrifices after that, they didn't have any meaning. But do you know that that was literally fulfilled that day? the sacrifice and the oblation ceased, and you say, how's that? You read Desire of Ages, Ellen White clearly states that the priest had the knife in his hand, and he was about to slay the lamb. And then the earth shook, and the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, and the lamb escaped. Because the true lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, had died at that very moment. Isn't that amazing? So the sacrifice and oblation did cease in the middle of the week. Of course, the Jews afterwards started sacrificing again. But the, the symbolism clearly pointed to the fact if the lamb escaped, hey folks, the lamb has died. No more sacrifices of lambs. Now, when was salvation finished then? Salvation was finished when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished into your hands I commend my spirit. And you say, how could you say that salvation was finished? Listen, provision for salvation was finished when Jesus died on the cross. The provision was made. There was now a perfect life that could cover our imperfect life. And there was now a death for sin 
that could count as our debt. The provision for salvation was complete. The thing that was still lacking was who was going to benefit from what Jesus did. That's the work that he continues performing in the sanctuary. He's applying the benefits of his atonement. Are you with me or not? It's very important to distinguish these two. But the provision for salvation was finished when Jesus said, It is finished. The provision for salvation was complete. Jesus had lived a perfect life and he had died for sin. That was the good news. Salvation had been purchased. Salvation had been obtained. Now listen carefully. Even though the lamb was sacrificed at three in the afternoon, the people did not eat the Passover lamb until the sunset. Interesting. Now how is that symbolic? Well, you know, to prepare the lamb took an effort. They would have to slay the lamb, then they'd have to clean the lamb, and then they would have to roast the lamb, and then they partook of the lamb. Let me ask you, after Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, did several things have to be done with him before he was laid in the tomb? Absolutely. His body had to be prepared for burial. They had to go and ask for the body of Jesus to Pilate. They had to take him down from the cross. They had to clean his body. They had to wrap him in linen. They had to transport him to the place of burial. They had to bury him. And they had to roll the stone in front of the grave. That would have taken more than five minutes. It took the better part of Friday afternoon to prepare Jesus for burial. But when the sun set, Jesus was resting in the tomb. Before the Sabbath began, shortly before the Sabbath began, the body of Jesus, the flesh of Jesus, was resting in the grave. It was resting in the tomb. Now let's take a look at the sequence of days of the Passion of Christ. Luke 23, verses 54 to 56. Luke 23, 54 to 56. This is a passage we usually use when we preach an evangelism about the Sabbath. It says that day was the preparation, that's the day of the crucifixion, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Which is the commandment that says you're supposed to keep the Sabbath? The fourth commandment. Are they keeping the fourth commandment? Are they resting according to the commandment? Yes. What was Jesus doing inside the tomb? Resting. What were they doing outside the tomb? Resting. Jesus was resting and his people were resting. Now here's the question. What was the rest of the women like? Oh, it was a joyful rest. They were all happy that Sabbath day. Are you kidding? It was a day of sadness. It was a day when they were remembering that, that their beloved Savior was dead. It was a day of anguish, a day of sorrow, a day of restlessness. But let me ask you, if they had truly understood what Jesus meant when he said on the cross, it is finished, and if they had clearly accepted what Jesus said, that he was going to resurrect on the first day, what would that Sabbath have been like? Oh, they would have said, the Master has saved us from sin. He has lived a perfect life. 
and he has paid for our sins. Hallelujah. Now he's resting in the grave, and tomorrow he will rise from the dead. Oh, what would that Sabbath have been if they'd understood Bible prophecy? It would have been a joyous celebration because the Messiah was resting from his works of redemption. Now some people are saying that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday and he resurrected on Sabbath. Others are saying that the three days and three nights begin on Tuesday night when Judas decided to uh, betray Jesus and Jesus resurrected shortly after sundown on Friday. This prophecy of Exodus 16 makes that absolutely impossible. I want to read this statement from Ellen White which is explicit. It's a statement about the days in which Jesus dies and Jesus rests in the tomb and when Jesus resurrected. This statement is found in Manuscript 25, 1898, and this is how it reads. The Father and the Son rested after their work of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested. The death of Christ was designed to be at the very time in which it took place. It was in God's plan that the work which Christ had engaged to do should be completed on a Friday. And that on the Sabbath he should rest in the tomb. Even as the Father and Son had rested after completing their creative work. So Jesus is repeating in redemption what happened at creation. But in redemption he works and then he rests in his work for redemption. At the beginning he created and then he rested from his works of creation. She continues saying, the hour of Christ's apparent defeat was the hour of his victory. The great plan devised before the foundations of the earth were laid was successfully carried out. And then when did Jesus resurrect? According to Luke 24 and verse 1, Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week. Is that clear? Now, some say that Jesus purposely chose Sunday as the day of his resurrection because he wanted his church to know that Sunday was holy and that it should be observed in honor of his resurrection from that day on. For example, John Paul II probably the most popular pope in history, in his pastoral letter, Dies Domini, makes a long list of all the significant events that took place on Sunday. He says Jesus resurrected Sunday. He walked with two of his followers to Emmaus on Sunday. He appeared to his disciples on Sunday evening and then appeared to them again the following Sunday. According to John Paul's calculations, the Holy Spirit was poured out on a Sunday. And the first proclamation of the gospel was on Sunday. And the first baptisms were on Sunday. Quite an impressive list, right? But the manna episode makes it absolutely clear that the important day was not Sunday, but the Sabbath. If Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath and his body saw no corruption, then he would have had to rest in the tomb on the Sabbath. Are you following me? In other words, the significant day is not Sunday. The significant day is the day before Sunday. Because if Jesus, according to Exodus 16, had to rest in the tomb all day Sabbath, what day would he resurrect then? He would resurrect the next day. 
but he's not resurrecting the next day to make the next day holy, but because he had to rest the previous day in the tomb to fulfill Exodus 16. Are you following me? So the significant day is the Sabbath when Jesus rested in the tomb, not Sunday. You know, it's amazing to me that during Holy Week, Christians speak about Palm Sunday, Ash Wednesday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, and what do they say about the Sabbath? Nothing. Interesting. The Sabbath disappears. Every event of the Passion of Christ is celebrated. But when it comes to the Sabbath, it's practically disappearing. Now some people use questionable arguments to defend Sunday as a day of rest. For example, they say that all day Sabbath the disciples were sad because Jesus was dead, but on Sunday they were happy because Jesus had resurrected. <laughs> Somebody once said, I call it the psychological argument. <laughs> And, and, and the person who used that argument, I said, you know, the problem is there are two things that, uh, that deny the argument that you are using. First of all, it was not God's intention that they be sad on the Sabbath. Jesus had told them repeatedly that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer, and he was going to die, and he was going to resurrect the third day. Now, if they had believed that, would that have been a sad day? No, that would have been a happy day. It's not God's fault that it was a sad day. It was not the intention of God that it be a sad day. It was the intention of God that it be a happy day. And secondly, and even more devastating, is the fact that on Sunday night, the disciples did not even believe that Jesus had resurrected. If you read the gospel stories. So how could they be happy all day Sunday if they didn't believe that Jesus had resurrected until Sunday night? You see, people use all sorts of arguments that they repeat, but they don't examine Scripture for themselves. Now, let's get back to the manna. The body or the flesh of Jesus rested in the tomb on Sabbath. And Jesus is the manna. What happened to the manna when it was saved from Friday to Sabbath? It was as fresh on Sabbath as it had been on Friday. It did not breed worms, nor did it stink. What would have happened with a normal body if somebody had died on Friday? What would have begun? The process of decomposition, which would eventually lead to breed worms and stink, the flesh. But Jesus in the tomb was the manna, and therefore his body did not decompose. His body did not see corruption because he was what the manna represented. Are you understanding me? Now let's prove this from scripture. Go with me once again to John 6 and verse 51. John chapter 6 and verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The manna represents the flesh of Jesus. The manna did not breed worms or stink on the Sabbath. And that represented the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now notice the prophecy from Psalm 16 and verses 8 through 10. The prophecy from Psalm 16 and verses 8 through 10. This is a prophecy of David 
This never happened with David. This is a direct prophecy about the Messiah. And um, I am going to read as it appears in the NIV because it's uh, less confusing than it is in the King James Version. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Here Jesus is speaking to his Father. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. Now notice this. My flesh also will... What's the next word? Hmm, interesting. What did the flesh of Jesus do? It rested. Where? In the tomb. My flesh also will rest in hope. Now why does the flesh of Jesus rest in hope? Here comes the reason. For, that means because... You will not leave me in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So while the body of Jesus rested in the grave, did his body decompose? No, because he was what the manna represented. He died on Friday while his body was resting, his flesh was resting. It did not decompose because he was what the manna represented. Now you say, how do you know that this psalm applies to Jesus? Well, the Apostle Peter quoted it in Acts chapter 2 in his Pentecostal sermon. Acts 2 verses 25 to 27, and then we'll read verses 31 and 32. Here it says in Acts 2.25, For David says concerning him, now he's going to quote Psalm 60, he's saying this applies to Jesus. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad, moreover my flesh also will what? Will rest in hope. This is from Acts, it's no longer from Psalms. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave, as the NIV says, you will not leave me in the grave or in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now notice what that means in verses 31 and 32. It says about David, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see what? Nor did his body see decay. So let me ask you, what is the reason? What is the second reason for keeping the Sabbath? First reason is because we rest because the Creator rested on the Sabbath. What is the second reason? We rest on Sabbath because it's in commemoration of the rest of the Redeemer. So we have two reasons to keep the Sabbath. First of all, we rest in the Creator's rest. And by the way, the Creator is Jesus. All things were made through Him. So we rest on Sabbath to commemorate the creation that Jesus brought forth, and we also rest because we follow his example in resting in the tomb on the Sabbath. So is there a Christ-centered reason for keeping the Sabbath? See, Exodus 16 not only tells you keep the Sabbath, but it tells you why you should keep the Sabbath. It's because Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, and we should rest with him. The women did not understand it, but the Bible says that they rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Let me ask you, once they understood, do you think they rested in a different way? Oh, I can imagine saying, oh, wow, did we ever miss the point? Now, from now on, we're going to rest in what Jesus did, because he's such a wonderful Savior. He lived a perfect life, and he paid for our sins. Wow. 
So we need to be careful about interpreting Exodus 16 without Jesus. Because, there, because the reason for, for the manna is Christ-centered. It's not just manna itself. But now I want you to notice that the Sabbath has a third dimension. There's a third reason for keeping the Sabbath. And it is a prophetic reason. A future reason as we look forward in history. You see, God invited, this is the last page, God invited Adam and Eve to enter his rest at creation. Now he invites us to enter his rest in redemption. But the Sabbath also has a prophetic dimension. Jesus will invite us to enter his rest when he makes a new heavens and a new earth. The Sabbath thus points back to creation, it points to the, far, to the present, to redemption, and it points to the future, the everlasting kingdom. Will we keep the Sabbath in the earth made new? Yes. Go with me to Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. This is a passage we all know well. We use it in evangelism, and very appropriately so. And notice what it says. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me. Is this the same expression that appears in Revelation 21 and 22? New heavens and new earth? Absolutely, it's referring to the same thing. So it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, uh, and some people get all confused about the new moon, uh, the new moon is simply the beginning of the month. It can be translated month. In, in fact, the Spanish version says de mes en mes. Instead of from new moon to new moon, it says from month to month. Why are we going to go to worship before the Lord every month? Because there's a certain tree that produces its fruit every month. And we have to go eat from the tree of life every month. Do you realize that Adam and Eve had to continue eating from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? It wasn't sufficient to eat only once and they would be immortal. They had to continuously eat, eat from the tree of life. The tree of life was a battery charger. <laughs> In other words, they didn't have to have inherent life within themselves. They needed to go every month, because we're going to have to go every month. They needed to go every month to eat from the tree of life to recharge their battery. Do you know why individuals lived to be almost a thousand years before the flood? Because they had a more charged battery than we do. <laughs> the, the battery has become depleted because we have been deprived of the tree of life. But we will be able to partake of the tree of life in the kingdom. We will go from month to month, from new moon to moon, new moon, to eat from the tree of life. But we're going to go for another reason. So it says from new moon to new moon, or from uh, month to month, and from one Sabbath to another, all the Jews. Thank you very much. Well, you're still awake out there. All flesh. So if you're made of flesh, you're going to be there. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now some people say, wait a minute, there's not going to be any sun or moon up there, so how are you going to have months and how are you going to have days? Well, we solved that problem yesterday, didn't we, in our class. But let's read the verse again, just in case anybody was sleeping. Revelation 21, verse 23, is there going to be a sun and moon in the new earth? Of course they are. You know what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus? You can read it in early writings, page 41. Ellen White says that when God utters his voice to deliver his people, his voice will be so powerful that the sun, moon, and stars will be moved out of their places. 
And that's the reason why this earth will be dark during the millennium, because the sun will be moved out of its place. So after the millennium, when God makes a new heavens and a new earth, he will rearrange our planetary system. And he will place the sun, the moon, and the stars where they will benefit our earth. And he will make a new heavens and a new earth. So notice, Revelation 21 and verse 23. The city, where? The new earth? The whole new earth? No, no, no. The city had no need. Does it say the city had, the, the sun and moon don't shine in the city? No, it says that there's no need in the city for sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated, illuminated it, and the Lamb is its what? The Lamb is its light. Is there going to be a sun and a moon? Yes, they are. Are the sun and the moon going to be as glorious as the glory of God in the city? Absolutely not. It'll be like I said yesterday, shining a flashlight on the ground at noon in Fresno. The beam is shining. You can't see it. Because the glory of the sun is so bright that the flashlight in comparison is nothing. And this is what is meant by Isaiah 24 and verse 23 that we noticed yesterday, where it says the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. You know, there's going to step aside. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Now, how long do you think Jesus is going to take to create a new heavens and a new earth? You know, I used to think that, uh, that he was going to make everything new just like that. Let everything be new. And it's all there. I don't believe that. You say, why don't you believe that? I'll explain the reason why. We are going to keep the Sabbath in commemoration of the creation of new heavens and new earth. And you cannot have a seventh day unless you have the first six. Are you following me or not? You, if the Sabbath, the seventh day, is going to commemorate the new creation, you have to have the first six in order to have the seventh. And so Jesus, when he creates this earth, he is going to perform the work that he performed originally at creation. And do you know what the, what the exciting thing is? You see, at the beginning, Adam and Eve did not see God create anything. Were they there when the light was created? No. Were they there when the firmament was created? No. Were they there when the dry land and the plants and the trees and the flowers were created? No. Were they there when the sun, moon, and stars were put in order? Absolutely not. Were they there when the birds and the fish were created? Absolutely not. Were they there when the animals were created, the land animals were created? No. So did Adam see God create anything? Obviously Adam didn't see God create him. He just suddenly wakes up. He looks all around and, wow, where did I come from? And the amazing thing is that Adam did not even see Eve created because God put him to sleep. What is the only way in which Adam and Eve could be sure that Jesus was the creator? By faith in the story that Jesus told them. They lived by faith, not by sight. But you know what the amazing thing is? 
that when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, we shall be spectators. <laughs> I love this. Because God's people will be alive inside the holy city. And you can imagine we're sitting front row seats. No bleachers for any of God's people. Front row seats. Box seats. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. And then Jesus will say, let there be light. Wow. There it is. Let there be the firmament. Everything was destroyed by the plague of the second coming. The earth was without form and void, Jeremiah says, just like before creation week. Are you with me? And so now Jesus says, ah, let the dry land produce trees and flowers and plants. And, and the, the earth becomes a gigantic botanical garden. And then Jesus says, let the sun, moon, and stars occupy their legitimate places. And so all of, those, all of those heavenly bodies occupy their places to benefit the planet. And then Jesus says, let the, let the sky have birds. And let the waters produce fish. And suddenly the waters are bubbling with life. And the birds are chirping away and singing in the heavens. And then Jesus says, let the land produce all of these animals. So you have giraffes and elephants and cows and horses. And the serpent will drag himself along. <laughs> He's not going to fly again. There will be two reminders. The reminder of the, of the scars on the body of Jesus. And the Bible says that the serpent will eat dust. He'll bite the dust. Interesting. And then when Jesus finishes his work, he'll say to his people, what do you think? And we're going to say, Lord, the elephant's ears are too big. <laughs> Lord, the giraffe's neck is too long. No! We will look in awe at everything that Jesus has made. It is absolutely perfect, even more beautiful than it was at the beginning. And then Jesus will say, as the sun sets the sixth day, he'll say, my people, let's now sit down and rest and enjoy. And so the seventh day will be used for the same thing that the seventh day was used at the beginning, at creation. If you read the material on God's great week that you received yesterday, Ellen White said that God looked upon his work of creation and he delighted in his work of creation. Everything was beautiful and everything was perfect, worthy of its divine author. He rested not as one tired, but one who delighted in his work of creation. I can imagine God said, wow, I even outdid myself. <laughs> this is wonderful, beautiful. And Adam and Eve were there. The Sabbath was still not holy until God had rested the whole day, but Adam and Eve are with Jesus. And Jesus is giving them the scenic tour. He says, look, wow. And he's taking them all, all across creation. They're saying, wow, what a wonderful world. Where did this come from? Jesus said, I made it. Why? For you. For us. Free? Yes, free. It's yours. Wow, what a wonderful God you are. And then the devil has to come in and spoil it by trying to make, make, trying to make God look bad. And Eve bought it after all of the wonderful things that God had done for her and that Adam had done for, uh, for, 
that God had done for Adam. Unbelievable. And that's why we're here in this class. Or else we would be in the Garden of Eden. But we have an Eden to look forward to. If we receive Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, if we claim his life and his death in our place, is we, if we see what sin cost, and when we see what sin cost, we say to Jesus, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I hate sin. I love you, I hate sin. I want to overcome sin. Please give me victory over sin. Jesus will give us victory over sin. So it's not only a matter of, in a cheap way, saying, okay, give me your life and give me your death. No, the sorrow for sin will lead us to want to reflect the beautiful and perfect character of Jesus and rest in Him as our wonderful Creator, as our wonderful Redeemer, and as our soon-to-be Restorer in a new heavens and a new earth. What a wonderful God we have, and what a Christ-centered perspective of the Sabbath in Scripture. See, it's not about keeping the Sabbath. It's about loving the Lord of the Sabbath and delighting in spending time with Him because we like to spend time with people we love. So people who say, oh, I don't have to keep the Sabbath, they're slapping Jesus in the face. They're saying, I don't want to spend time with you. It's all about time with our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Savior He is. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.